0: Hello there. You're listening to Manufacturing Tomorrow, brought to you by the Ohio Manufacturing Institute at The Ohio State University. I'm Katherine Kelly, your host. Today I am speaking with Mary Beth Ramey, control systems engineer for the Delvern area of DuPont Transportation Industrial in Parkersburg, West Virginia. DuPont is a spinoff of the world's fourth largest chemical company, Dow DuPont, and is focused on specialty products that serve both industrial and consumer markets. The Washington Works site consists of two operational units, engineered polymers and performance resins. DuPont polymers are used in everything from mobile phone components and uh, um, insulin injector pins to electronics for autonomous vehicles and what I found out even rollerblades. Mary Beth has also worked as a process engineer for DuPont's Zytel product line. She is currently the membership chair and webmaster of the Columbus chapter of the International Society of Automation, or more commonly known as ISA, and she serves on the ISA standards committee on human machine interfaces. She received her bachelor's degree in chemical engineering at Virginia Tech. Mary Beth, welcome to the show. Thanks, Catherine. Uh, would you tell us more about the types of products that are developed at the DuPont Washington Works site and the roles you've served there?
1: Yeah. Uh, so, as you said, the T&I business, transportation and industrial business here at Washington Works is split up into two sections, the engineered polymers and the performance resins. So, um, as a whole, the TNI business is home to several product families, things like Delrin, Craston, Reinite, Zytel, and so on. Um, Each of these is a type of polymer that we synthesize and then formulate with various additives to meet uh, various consumer needs. Um, So for example, does a product need to be electrical friendly or does it need to be resistant to high temperatures, does it need to be resistant to corrosion, etc. So that's what we formulate to make those special needs then consumers go on to mold those parts for various industrial applications which are mostly automotive for the tni business at dupont so that's kind of where we fit in in the industrial supply chain for polymers so in my current role um like you said i i am a control systems engineer in the delrin family here in parkersburg but i have to admit i just started this role in, on August 3rd, so I've been in training and can't speak too much about the Delrin product family. So um, for the majority of my time in this business, I've spent time in Zytel, so in their specialty compounding division. Um, this is where we create specialty Zytel resins uh, through extrusion compounding technology. So the base polymers come to my area and then um, that's where we formulate them with all these special additives to meet whatever consumer needs we need. So my role in this area was mostly dedicated to commercializing new specialty resins. Um, the R&D group would come to me with a new product that they formulated in the lab and ask me to scale it up to a commercial size process in order to determine its feasibility to produce commercially. So this effort involved understanding the chemistry of mixing and melting the various raw materials together inside the raw in the, inside the extruder uh, in order to calculate the work, which was required to formulate the desired finished product properties uh, on larger assets than the R&D labs used. Uh, so it wasn't as easy as, oh, R&D made it, we can just make it on a production size. It, it didn't require a lot of calculation and effort there. Um, So it also involved a lot of planning and organization to perform tests safely on a commercial scale. Um, So you can't immediately take a product from R&D, run it on a commercial scale and immediately sell it afterward. You have to run some tests to make sure it's feasible and it's safe. Um, When I say safe, I really want to put an emphasis on on that safety uh, because Every new raw material that we consume here in my area, every new finished product that we make has a different set of properties and how it behaves health-wise, flammability wise -wise, -wise, reactivity-wise, environmentally. And so we have to analyze every single material for its own effects and make sure it's safe to operate. Uh, So once we determine whether a new resin is safe to operate, Uh, Then we, like I said, run a few tests on the commercial extruders. Um, We take property tests uh, on the finished products to make sure they perform similarly to how they did in the lab scale. Um, And if there are any things that are drastically different, we tweak them on the the production side and see what we can do to get them similar to the lab. So some popular property tests for automotive applications that we usually run on our finished products. We have something like tensile strength. Uh, which is a measure of how resistant a material is to breaking under tension. Uh, we have Sharpie impact tests. Um, it measures how much energy energy is absorbed by a material when it fractures, so, gives you an idea of how brittle a material is, and then the strain of break. Um, which measures how far material stretches before reaching its breaking point. So those are some of the common tests we run on the finished product to make sure it's performing well and and looks good according to what the lab produced. Um, And then it just indicates to us how that material will will perform under these everyday pressures they they will face in their applications, wherever they will end up. So so that's a little bit about the process of developing new products, and, and that's the role I've largely played in the business.
0: So I think uh, probably every household has at least one DuPont product. So, what are some of the most long-standing, or, or even if you could pick one or two out of long-standing or even recent innovations that uh, our audience would know?
1: Uh, okay. Well, um, so the most long-standing innovation that I can really talk about is nylon. Everybody knows nylon. Um, it's it's arguably the most widely known plastic. In the world, arguably, <laughs> I'm probably biased there. Um, it's in clothes, it's in cars, it's in electronics. It's just you look at a plastic part, it, might, it's, it probably is made out of nylon in some aspects. So students experiment it, experiment with it in school when we're learning about polymerization. Um, so DuPont invented it. I did a quick Google search because I actually didn't know when, uh, in the early 20th century. And um, even though nylon is now produced all over the world by so many competitors, DuPont now produces it under the trade name Zytel. Um, So there are a lot of different types of Zytel that we produce that meet all sorts of needs. Um, For example, we have one special grade that is glass reinforced and toughened um, that are used in sporting goods. like. Skate wheels, Um, we make some long chain resins that are more flexible uh, than traditional nylons and so we use those in things like hoses, um, fuel lines, air tubes, cables, um, and it's even in some of your phone housing. Um, we have high temperature nylons that are used in automotive engine covers, things that just need to be very resistant to high temperatures, mechanical gears, electronics. Um, so those are some of the most well-known products and end uses. Um, they're actually, I, I you also mentioned some of the most recent innovations that we have going on. So there's one that I'd, I'd like to talk about, which is um, It's more of a a process innovation than it is a product innovation, though new products will 100% stem from it. Um, So one of the most exciting innovations I got to work on at my role was, um, so reactive extrusion is a relatively new polymer compounding process, and it's a way to synthesize base polymers outside of your typical um, batch vessels or continuous polymerizers. and it, it's basically becoming more popular in the industry because it can produce unique polymers uh, that have a lot of issues in traditional reactors. Um, and so, this is a process we We got to start at DuPont. We weren't the first to the punch, but we got to get involved in it last year and I I helped bring it to our production facility. We had to just explore whether it was feasible on our assets. So when we brought it to our our production facility, um, our R&D folks had already tried it on the lab scale. So this would have been the first time at DuPont we tried it on a commercial scale. Uh, The first time we were ever bringing a chemical reaction at all to our extruders. So with that new technology, it required an intense analysis of, like I said before, the health, safety, environmental risks of what we were about to bring to our assets. Um, so we had so many safety reviews with our specialists in order to make sure it was feasible, it was safe to explore. Uh, the reactions weren't gonna be runaway reactions, everything, all the risks were mitigated, you know. Um, then we had to sit down and, and do the, the, the calculations and the engineering work to make our best estimate about, well, is it even going to be feasible? You know, and and so we would operate under the ideal calculations, and and so we had all this planning to do, and then we finally had the trial, and we were successful, and uh, and we were able to crank out a good finished product, um, and so that's something that's coming down the pipeline at Dupont now. They're going to be very specialty products, um, for very specialty applications. You think? Um, so that's coming. It's exciting. I I was excited to get that started, and so that's a, a recent innovation that's going to just keep on. Keep on coming down the line.
0: Oh, that's amazing. And, uh, you, know, the, you know, given that, that DuPont has a longstanding culture of, of innovation, in what ways uh, is, is uh, are you seeing Industry 4.0 entering into uh, the operations?
1: So um, Industry 4.0 and the Industrial Internet of Things is is making waves at DuPont for sure, um, but not in the machine learning or artificial intelligence way that most people initially think when they hear the term Industry 4.0. Well, not to my knowledge. The IT department at DuPont might have a different picture of that, but from the process plant side, um, we're more implementing things like real-time optimizing control systems, real-time data monitoring, which are, are probably the closest things we have to machine learning um, we're, we're launching some interconnected supply chain systems uh, for better uh, predictive uh, supply chain routes and um, We always have an emphasis on automating manual processes. That's always one of our key focuses. Uh, so, for example, in my new role. One of the tasks I have been charged with is automating a sequence of steps in a single button that the operator can click from the control room and it just, it- it runs this whole process by itself. You know, It, it opens all the valves by itself, um, turns on all the machines, does what it needs to do, as opposed to the operator doing all that manually. Um, so projects like this involve installing automatic equipment in place of manual equipment so we can wire it up to the control systems. Involves writing the logic and the controller to tell it what to do, uh, give it a, a series of ifs and then statements. Um, and then maintaining and operating throughout its lifecycle. So those are some of the ways I'm involved in industry 4.0 uh, at the plant side. Um, again if the IT department has some other solutions that may be best for them to answer so I'll, I'll leave that to the IT folks.
0: Uh, actually everything that you mentioned fits under there or even what we're doing uh, research in uh, what we call manufacturing 5.0 which is a focused on the operations technology so you definitely gotcha. Uh, yeah, you definitely uh, mentioned a number of things that are factors. So um, let's talk about ISA for a little bit. Um, In your involvement with ISA, you participate in the Human Machine uh, Interfaces Committee. So um, what is your interest in this area? I mean, and and does that actually, does that involve COBOTs as well?
1: COBOTs. So um, no, COBOTs are not really in my scope on this committee. Um, They're an interesting concept, though, and it it would be interesting to see how it, it lays out in the future as they become more widely known in the industry. Um, so my involvement in this, the Human Machine Interface Committee is mostly at the graphics level. So. Um, I work to ensure the operators who are sitting in any given control room have a good sense of situational awareness, and those—that's the key phrase—situational awareness when it comes to graphics. In uh, chemical plants, or really any manufacturing plant, uh, there are safety, health, and environmental risks that are just inherent to the process. They—they they can't be avoided, but they can be mitigated uh, and controlled. So the operators in the control rooms—they're charged with monitoring the process 24 seven to make sure everything's okay and none of those hazards are going to get out of check Uh, so they're like our firefighters if they if something goes wrong they're our first responders so what we do with the graphics we need to make sure the things they're seeing on the computers that tell them where the process is we need to make sure it gives them the most readily available information as quickly as possible as accurately as possible and in a way that just makes sense you know so that they don't have to go scrambling to find out the information they need in the seconds that might matter so um to do this at dupont we have transformed all of our process graphics to web-based platforms and this actually goes a little bit to industry 4.0 5.0 web-based internet of things we transformed all of our process graphics to web-based platforms uh, mainly to have right-click functionality, which is a big selling point of HTML graphics that most people may not even realize. So you know right-clicking on any web page when you surf the internet, you get this little help menu and you don't realize how, how pivotal that is and how important it is, but in a in a process area. We just haven't had that functionality for years and years and years. We've had these old native window displays where you can't right click and ask for help if you are missing some information. So how we are using it now, we have these web-based graphics. We can right click on a piece of equipment that's alarming. Say a pump won't start, it's alarming for some reason. You right click and you say alarm help, what's going on? And then right right at their fingertips, the operators in the control rooms can see why is this pump alarming? What happens if I don't respond? How long do I have to respond? What do I do to fix it? Right there at their fingertips, which saves a lot of time and and can prevent some safety incidents from happening. So I spent a lot of time on this project as a co-op at the DuPont plant in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, So that is what brought me to the ISA Standards Committee for HMIs. Um, And so as part of the committee, we basically, um, we guard the standards documents that we have and make sure they're up to date and we're constantly reviewing them. Um, I'm relatively new to the committee itself. I, I just joined when I became a full-time employee uh, <clears throat> last year. So uh, by and large, I've observed the goal is to make sure we're setting the gap policies, those recognized and generally acceptable good engineering practices, gap, um, so that People can refer to those standards and say, you know what, if I follow these ISA guidelines, I'm going to have a good setup. My, my control room operators are going to have the information they need to have a good situational awareness.
0: Okay. Got it. So um, you talked about co-op. So let's talk about your, your educational background and, and how you started in your career. Uh, so you, you began with math education, then you moved to biochemistry. How did you end up in chemical engineering at Virginia Tech?
1: It was actually by accident. I kind of stumbled into it. So I was guilty of not knowing what I wanted to do with my life when I graduated high school. Uh, So I started out in math education just because I was good at math. That was the only reason. Um, But I wasn't really passionate about it. Uh, At least I wasn't passionate about math for the sake of math. (laughs) So by the end of my first year, I was bored. I just not interested in it. Um, I switched to biochemistry after my freshman year thinking, well, a lot of my family members are in the medical field. A lot of them are nurses, a couple are doctors, whatever. So I thought, you know what, that seems to be a good career. I'll give it a shot. Um, Biochemistry seemed to be a good place for me to still stay at Virginia Tech for my undergrad and then afterward maybe pursue nursing or a doctorate I didn't know at the time, but I thought, well, this will keep me here. Uh, I can finish my undergrad and then decide from there. So I spent my whole sophomore year pursuing that before shadowing someone in the medical field to see what the job's actually like. And that that was an eye opener for me. I realized I did not like working with patients. Um, I didn't like the environment of, of working in a hospital or a doctor's office. It just, it just didn't sit well. It wasn't comfortable for me. Um, and I realized I did not want to do that, that work. So then I, I had my quarter life crisis, uh, realizing I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I had already finished two years of college. Um, meanwhile, my entire life, uh, my mother had actually been dropping hints in my ear about, hey, try engineering. Hey, try engineering. She's an engineer, by the way. Um <laughs> I never wanted to do engineering because I always thought whatever it was that she and my dad were talking about at the dinner table growing up, I thought was incredibly boring. I I couldn't imagine doing what they did, Um, just just never thought it was interesting. You know, all this talk about valves, pumps, equipment, failures, whatever. So I I thought that was all engineering was, never looked into it. But since two years into college, I was out of ideas, didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I started taking her more seriously. I applied for a co-op at the DuPont plant there in Richmond, which is near where I lived, uh, so that I could try to take the next semester off school. You know, co-ops usually do the every other semester in school, every, semester, every other semester off while you work. Um, so I, I, I applied for it so I could take a semester off, learn what engineers do, and then decide if that was really a path I, I wanted to pursue. So it was there that I, I realized how practical of a profession engineering is and i really grew to admire the engineers around me it seemed like for every problem they had a solution they just knew how to how to fix things and their primary objective all along the way was safety 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 and so it made me feel like this is going to be a fun challenge and my safety will be valued as an engineer that always seems to be their goal Um, so those were some of the key things I learned during my co-op, the first couple of rotations that inspired me to switch into engineering at Virginia Tech. So I stuck around for this co-op during that fall semester of my junior year, then I went back in the spring, finished up some pre before switching into chemical engineering. I chose chemical mainly because the engineers that I had shadowed and worked with at the DuPont site, they were either mechanical, chemical, or electrical. Uh, those seem to be the big three and just of all the work they were each doing i liked the work that the chemical engineers are doing the best so that's why i chose chemical Um, so long story short from there i was hooked loved chemical engineering Um, it was definitely a challenge but it was a, a very practical challenge you know and always made me feel like i was i was doing work worth doing
0: what skills did your degree help you develop in preparation for your career
1: problem solving like crazy. So, problem solving is the big one. I definitely accredit my degree for giving me critical thinking skills. Uh, I, I remember there was this enlightenment period where I just felt like, oh my goodness, I, I can solve these problems. I can actually think through this problem myself. You know, at first, my first semester in chemical engineering was very daunting. Uh, I was very intimidated by these problems. I had to sit down and solve in tests or even just homework uh, in my engineering classes. Um, but I just remember it it took time. You had to sit there and you just had to just think. You know, I probably looked like a crazy person just sitting there staring at the sheet of paper, just thinking, you know? And that's all you could do was think about it, think it through, and um, eventually you, you just get this enlightenment that comes to light. You realize it's more than just plugging numbers into equations and getting answers. It's about visualizing what is physically happening in the problem statement in order to even figure out which equations apply, um, so that taught me you can't really solve a problem unless you fully understand what's going on in the system. Uh, and if you're ever lacking information on what's fully going on, you have to use good judgment to make assumptions about what is probably going on, you know, because realistically, you may not have all the information in front of you when you sit down to solve a problem. Um, but if you are prepared enough and you, you learn the laws of nature in school, things like thermodynamics or physics, um, those will lead you in the right direction. You'll think, well, what what scientifically is plausible? What would realistically happen in this situation? And that gets you a starting point, leads you to a good enough conclusion to make good estimations, which is really the key to engineering making good estimations and um, you you know where to look if you need a hundred percent precise calculations but for estimating that's where engineering skills come in, come into play so for example a common problem that I needed to solve in my previous role in extrusion compounding was hey why is my polymer viscosity so low for this product common problem well That is when I depended on knowing the laws of nature. You know, well, what what even is viscosity and how can it be affected? You know, the viscosity is a measure of flow of a material and it's a function of temperature, mostly. You know, so if you heat up the material, it's going to become less viscous, more flowy. So then knowing that that's how viscosity works in nature, you ask yourself, okay, well, what could have caused the material to heat up in the process in order to become this flowy and less viscous than I need it needed to be. Then, you know, the extrusion process, you get trained up on that and you think, okay, well, the two main sources of energy there are the, the barrel temperatures, which are heating it up, and then mainly that extruder screw, which gives it that mechanical work. So those are the two big points where energy could have been introduced to material, you could have heated it up, and, and by and large, you just, one or the other, try one out, which one did it? then you can troubleshoot it and bam, your problem is solved. And so that's where knowing the laws of nature, thinking about what's actually going on in the process, um, what handles you have to control those parameters and that helps you solve problems in the real world. So uh, yeah, I would say problem solving, that's the biggest skill I took away from my degree. Um, I learned how to think critically so that as long as I can get trained on my specific process in the future, I, I have confidence that my degree has has taught me to ask the right questions um, and think critically and try to visualize what's going on in order to solve problems.
0: If you had one piece of advice to give new graduates in engineering, especially female graduates, what would it be?
1: One piece of advice. I I don't know if I can narrow it down to one. Um, I have little bits and pieces of advice, so mainly just about how to be a, a good professional. You see a lot of really bright talented engineers from college go out into the workforce but because they don't know how to be a good working professional they just they don't thrive in their careers Um, and so my biggest piece of advice is just overall be a, a professional when you go out into the workforce so um one of the one of the ways you can do this is when you first start out at your new job whatever process you get assigned to i'm assuming you're going to be in some manufacturing line you want to ask as many questions as you can early on you want to ask questions you think are dumb things things that uh, make you look like an idiot you want to ask them just early on before you end up in that process for a year and people are like how do you not know this you've been you've been in this process for a year and you don't know the answer to that yet? No. Get all your questions out early. No one's going to think you're dumb when you're just getting started. So that's probably my, my big piece of advice coming straight out of college and into the workforce for the first time. It's okay to look dumb early on. Ask the questions. Um, I'd also say you want to get organized. That's very key. Organization is a key skill that is surprisingly valued in the workplace, but it's not surprisingly common. Uh, so, uh, one of those you can do is keeping a sustainable to-do list. I, I want to emphasize a sustainable to-do list instead of just something on a piece of scrap paper because I can almost assure you coming out of college, you will be overworked in whatever job you are assigned. We are all crazy overworked these days and you'll get tasks that just pile up on your desk, You'll emails that flood your your email box. And so you want to create some kind of sustainable system where you can Constantly go back to it and make sure you're you're on track. You know you're setting deadlines for yourself and and keeping your tasks in hand. Um, I also think it's very important to have good communication. Um, One of the best ways you can do that is to be a good emailer. This is also undervalued, um, but people love it if you just respond. You'd be amazed how many people just don't respond to emails and you feel like you're just writing a black box and and you're just never going to get a response back. So I would say um, the best way to ensure you're at least doing your best in communicating is always reply to emails within 24 hours of receiving them. Let whoever sent it know you've received it. You'll definitely get a lot of emails that require hours and hours of work on your end. You know, Someone will send you a question, it's gonna take hours to answer that question. Um, But if you can't dedicate that time immediately, just email that person back and say, I will look into it, I'll let you know by XYZ date. They will appreciate the feedback so much more than waiting a week in order to actually do the work and give them an answer. You know, so that's something I've learned. Communication is essential along the way. Um, and the last piece of advice I'd say is more like a fun one that, that's definitely benefited me. Um, hopefully it will help you too and keep you engaged. Do IQ puzzles in your spare time. IQ puzzles are really great problem solving, fun activities. Uh, I like to just warm up with, well, nowadays it's crossword puzzles. Um, but back in college, it was a lot of just IQ uh, fun little things, and um, they're a good way to just warm up your critical thinking skills. They they're fun, but they do require some some thought to to solve them and and keep your critical thinking skills engaged throughout your career. So just make sure you're having fun with problem solving. Uh, that way, you don't get drowned out by the professional work of it all. So so that's some of my advice.
0: Yeah, that's great advice, and uh, I have time for one more question. And I'm, you know, since you're your um, your membership chair of the ISA Columbus section, I wanted you to be able to make your elevator pitch on the importance of participating in uh, professional societies, including you know, and particularly ISA while in college. Well,
1: during college, I think. Participating in a professional society is instrumental. I mean, in the obvious way, you get the professional connections, which can land you a job. As we know, it's trending in networking, networking, networking these days to get people jobs. So it's all about who you know. By joining a professional society and connecting with industry partners, you're just increasing that network of who you know, and so that just helps your likelihood of landing a job after you graduate. Then, while you're actually in the society during college, while you're making all these connections, what are you actually doing as part of the group? All right, hopefully, you're being a leader. You're developing those soft skills like leadership. You know, how can you lead a meeting? Can you lead a meeting all the way through? Can you plan a meeting? Can you set meeting agendas? Um, can you? speak confidently in front of a, a large group of people? Uh, communication, can you um, stay organized, stay on top of the jobs that need to get done in order to successfully put on events? Um, and then all along the way is that networking. So those are the, the soft skills that you'll gain from being in a professional organization in college. Um, they're, they're a lifelong learning process of keeping those skills, keeping, learning, maintaining, those soft skills. So you, you always want to be trying to, um, to do better at those. You also learn hard skills in case some of your, your classes are hopefully not uh, lacking so skills that industry partners definitely need. Um, personally, at my experience at Virginia Tech, we loved the ISA from the chemical engineering standpoint because we got hands-on process control experience. You know, we had a process controls class that taught us all about the theories, but with our ISA section, we had a lot of workshops from industry partners who would come in and give us hands-on experience in control systems, uh, how to build our own graphics, how to set things up and, and doing competitions with other schools and all that. Um, and so it just makes it a, a bit more fun way of learning. And it's not learning for nothing. You know, these are industry partners who are coming in to, to teach you. They're telling you please learn this because we will hire you, you know, we need you to know this coming out of college. We are so desperate for college graduates who know this and so many don't. Um, And then of course, it's just like any other club in college. You have fun, make friends all along the way, you volunteer. And so that that's really the benefit of being part of a professional society. And ISA does all those things really well, really focuses on automation and trying to get students involved in the, the community and connected to the whole world of, of our society. So, so yeah. Fantastic,
0: fantastic. Thank you so much, Mary Beth, for coming on the show.
1: Yep, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Catherine.